Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ told the story of a famous oil field called the Yates Pool. Uh, During the Depression, this field was a sheep ranch owned by a man named Yates. And Mr. Yates wasn't able to make enough money on his ranching operation to pay the principal and the interest on the mortgage. So he was in danger of losing his ranch. He didn't have much money for clothes or food. And like many others at that time, his family had to live on government subsidy. Day after day, Mr. Yates grazed his sheep over those rolling West Texas hills and was no doubt greatly troubled about how he was going to pay his bills. And then one day a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and told him there might be oil on his land. They asked permission to drill a wildcat well, and he signed a lease contract. At 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were drilled, many twice as large. In fact, 30 years after the discovery, a government test of one of the wells showed it still had a potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. And Mr. Yates owned it all. The day he purchased that land, he had received the oil and mineral rights. Yet he'd been living on government relief. A multimillionaire living in poverty on his own land. The problem? He didn't know the oil was there, even though he owned it. You know, for a lot of Christians, we may be living in spiritual poverty unnecessarily. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. The riches of Christ are our inheritance, but many of us are unaware that God has made so much available to us. We are unaware of all of that untapped potential that lies beneath the surface, especially our giftedness, our spiritual gifts, our natural abilities, our heart passions, the skills that we have learned, and even our personalities. People just don't think about these things. And I think that's why 85% of churches in this country are either plateaued or declining. It's not that God hasn't resourced the church. It's that it lies under the surface, untouched. And many of us don't even know it's there. The whole point of this series of sermons on Sunday mornings and our workshops on Wednesday nights is to help you drill a wildcat well into your heart and soul and discover the amazing resources that God has already entrusted to you. And today we're going to look at how even God shapes our personalities for His kingdom purposes. Now the first thing we have to do as we look at this idea of personality is to define what we mean by that. You know, personality is sort of like the word love. We use it a lot, but we don't always mean the same thing by it. So we need to look at a definition. According to the American Psychological Association, personality refers to individual differences and in characteristic patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving. The study of personality focuses on two broad areas. One is understanding individual differences in particular personality characteristics, such as sociability or irritability. You might know, know anybody that's irritable? Know anybody that's social? The other is understanding how the various parts of a person come together as a whole. Now, that last bit of that definition is what we've really been looking at through this whole series. When we say your shape, that's what we mean. The totality of who you are. All these diverse qualities of your person coming together as a whole. 
So sometimes we talk about personality in that way. We'll say that somebody is a personality, you know. Some personalities are famous people, right? We talk about a sports personality or, or we, talk, we say that somebody has great personality. We don't necessarily mean whether they're extroverted or introverted. We just are talking about who they are, how they present themselves to the world. And so if we're talking about that kind of general definition of personality, God himself is a personality. He is a person. God is not some mystical force. He has thoughts and feelings and a will and desires. He has unique qualities and characteristics that make God, God. But what we're focusing on today is the first part of this definition. The individual differences in characteristic patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving that illustrate how we each relate to the world and the people around us. That's what we mean by personality type. As some people call these personality preferences, or even you'll see the word temperament. We all have distinct likes and dislikes in how we live, don't we? We all have different ways that we relate to people, to family, to friends, to co-workers. We all have different approaches to making decisions. Those kinds of preferences are what make up our personality. We all have dominant characteristics. Even our eyes, you're either right eye or left eye dominant. Do you know that? You know, and so if you are looking in a, in, a, in a scope, for example, do you look in your right eye or your left eye? You know, if you're trying to focus in on something and you close one eye, some of us close our left eye or our right eye, we have different dominance in that. And, of course, we all know that some of us are right-handed and some of us are left-handed. And that kind of dominance, even in our, in our bodies, colors and influences the way we see the world, the way that we interact with things, the way that we do certain tasks. But discovering which eye or which hand we're dominant in is really pretty easy, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty simple to determine that. We can even observe that in other people. But when it comes to these inner preferences that we have, things get a little fuzzy. That's a little bit harder sometimes to put our finger on. But I think if we're armed with good information, we work at it, we can start to recognize the preferences in our personalities as well. And these preferences are even more influential in how we view the world, and in how we interact with others and relate to the things around us. Our personalities strongly influence almost every decision we make. Our career choices, who somebody chooses to date or marry, what we do on the weekends. It affects how we interact with our friends and our family and co-workers, how we lead, how we serve, how we spend our money or our time, how we handle and resolve conflict, even how we worship and connect with God are determined by our personalities. Now, the Bible doesn't have a lot of specific things to say about psychological issues like this, like personality, but the Bible is filled with people who have very big and diverse personalities, isn't it? And we'll look at some of those in a little while. You'll turn to Psalm 139 as we begin. We've used this passage in Psalms a few times in the past few weeks because it's such a foundational passage to this idea that God has created each of us uniquely and personally for a purpose beyond ourselves. And if you'll look with me as we think about not just the world's definition of personality, but what does the Bible have to say about our personality? And the first thing we see the Bible tells us is that our personalities are designed by God. Our personality is designed by God. Let's look at Psalm 139 verses 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Now that last one might put a little bit of fear in you, right? God knows what you're going to say before you do. But what David is saying is that the Lord knows us inside and out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what your tendencies are. He knows how you're going to handle a situation. He, he reads us like a book. But look what David goes on to say in verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God not only knows us inside and out, He made us. He shaped us. He wove us together in our mother's womb. He has crafted each and every one of us. And because of these things, because God has made us, He designed us, He knows every bit of what goes on in our hearts and in our minds, David ends this with a prayer. And this should be the prayer of each and every one of us. He says, Search me, O God, in verse 23, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David in this psalm, the whole psalm is about David acknowledging that there's a lot of mystery to how God has made us. It's no wonder we have to work hard at solving the mystery of us, right? There's no reason, no wonder we sometimes have to go to doctors. We have to get an outside person to help us even just kind of peel back the layers and understand why we feel a certain way or why we struggle with a certain bad habit or a sin in our life. And, and, and overcoming these things can be a struggle for us. Part of that's because God has made us in His image. He has woven us together like, like a tapestry with so many various parts and, and elements and characteristics to who we are. You know, it, it's like we're a masterpiece piece of art you might go to in a museum. And maybe you'll go to that museum and you'll, you can just stare at that piece of art for hours and just think you've committed it to memory. But the next time you go back and look at it, you see something you didn't see before. That's the way we are. We are complex works of God's hand. But understanding ourselves is made even more difficult because sin has marred God's original intent and design for us. You know, sometimes a piece of artwork over the years develops grime and dirt on it. And, and if you've ever seen a, a documentary about that, the way they can go in and restore a piece of art and peel back those layers of grime, we have layers of sin. The grime of sin that can cover up and hide that beautiful piece of art that God has designed each and every one of us to be. So yes, our personalities are designed by God and we should give God thanks for who we are. I, I tell couples this in premarital counseling. I say, you, you, you can't try to change your spouse's personality. Amen? You can't change your child's personality. Your personality is something that is so critical to who you are. We have to learn to appreciate each other's personalities. We have to learn how to get along with each other's personalities. But you can't really change it and we shouldn't necessarily try to do that. But the problem is that our personalities are also deformed by sin. Sin has deformed us. Now, as I was saying, no one temperament or, or personality preferences is, is all good or all bad. No one is better than the other. They each contain unique strengths and are rich with God-given qualities. But because of sin, each personality type is also fraught with weaknesses and dangers. As we heard in our Old Testament reading and as we talked about a few weeks ago, we can't necessarily trust the desires of our heart. And we can't necessarily trust our personalities either. 
Because they've been so twisted and marred by sin. Our understanding of God and ourselves and the world around us is so limited and so flawed. Which is why God has revealed Himself to us in His written Word and in the Word made flesh. He's not left all of this up to our own limited understanding or personal interpretations. And so no matter how lovely your personality may be, no matter how strong your child's personality may be, they've all been twisted by sin's effect. We've chosen autonomy over dependence on God, and we've turned away from His commands, such that even our bodies and our hearts and our minds work against us. Romans 7, Paul talks about this internal struggle. This struggle between the law of God and the law of sin that's still at work in our bodies. And he says this in verses 22 through 24. Paul says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me? from this body subject to death. Have you ever felt that way? Why do I keep doing these things? Why do I keep blowing up in anger at my kids? Why do I keep getting into these arguments with my coworker? Why do I... We, we all have those moments where we just get frustrated with ourselves because we know better. We want to be better, but we, we struggle at it. It's because our personalities designed by God have been deformed by sin. But then Paul gives us a word of hope here because... Our personalities are also delivered by Christ. And he answers his own question. Who will deliver me? Who will rescue me? In verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has saved us. The minute you put your faith and trust in Jesus, He saves us from the penalty of sin, from eternal punishment in hell. We are immediately saved from that by Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. But God is presently saving us every day from the power of sin through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. As I was researching this sermon, I found a good article by Southern Seminary about how our personalities influence our ministries and our service in the church. And the author wrote this. He said, Thus the special characteristics and unique qualities that mark our personality refract the colorful rays of divine design while also clouding and distorting through our sinfulness that very divine image. All of our personalities stand as evidence of God's image in mankind, but all our personalities are also corrupted and convoluted by sin. So it's a mixed bag. Our personalities are both a gift from God that reflect His design, but they're also a reflection of our sinful choices and tendencies. But Paul outlines in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are qualities that can transform our personalities so that we reflect Jesus more in how we respond to the world around us and how we relate to other people in our lives. And when we surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit's work, He enables us to do what we can never do on our own, to love God fully with the totality of our being, all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And that includes our personalities. So as we talk about personality types, or as I like to think of them as personality preferences or temperaments, as we talk about them, let's keep these things in mind. We should give God thanks 
for the gifts that help make us so unique and make our perspectives and our approaches helpful to the kingdom. I'm thankful that we're all different in this room. Amen? I mean, I'm thankful that y'all don't think like I do. We'd be in a mess. What would be the point of a committee meeting if we were all just going to agree on everything, right? That might make things a little bit easier in the committee meeting, but it would be detrimental to the life of our church. We have different ideas and different perspectives and different approaches. We solve problems in different ways. We see different sides of an issue, and that's a good thing. That's the strength of the body of Christ is the diversity of its members. So we should celebrate the good that's in our personalities, but we should surrender the bad. We should take the weaknesses, the flaws, the the tendencies that we have with our motives and our approaches to be selfish or to try to hurt other people. We should surrender that to give up the control of ourselves to God so that He can take our personalities and transform them to reflect Jesus. Listen, there's never any excuse for a Christian to use their personality type as an, as an excuse for bad behavior. And I've heard people do this. You know, they say, well, I, I just am a, I'm just a brushed, a, a, a brushed kind of person. I just tell it like it is. Your personality type is no excuse to be rude or to be harsh or to be judgmental and condemning, nor is your personality type an excuse to always be late or to never plan ahead. So we, we can't use our personalities as reasons to to make excuses for our flaws. Every personality is capable of serving the Lord. Every personality is capable of sharing the gospel. People tell me, say, well, I can't witness. That's just, I'm just not an outgoing person. You can be an introvert and still share the gospel with somebody. You just do it in a different way than I might do it. But all of us, regardless of our personality, are commanded by God to do certain things. We're expected by God to be certain ways. And our personalities are to be helps in that, not hindrances. Now, we see this demonstrated in the Bible. The fact that God has designed our personality, sin has deformed our personality, but Christ delivers our personality and transforms them into something helpful to the kingdom. We see this demonstrated in the Bible. The Bible's full of examples of the multi-layered and complex nature of personalities. I'm going to mention a few of them The Scripture references are in your notes. I'll let you read up and study on those later. But I just want to highlight a few of these differences for us. The first is Jacob and Esau. If you probably know this, Jacob and Esau were twins, but they were like oil and water. They were as different as night and day. Jacob was a sly, conniving mama's boy, while Esau was a rugged, simple man's man outdoorsman. And we see their personalities not only led them to different occupations, but different ways of dealing with adversity. Different ways of making plans. Jacob was constantly planning and scheming ways to get ahead, but Esau lived for the moment. He was impulsive. Now, early in the story, it seems like that Jacob's personality was the more dominant one, and it gave him an edge over his brother. But we discover in Genesis 33, at the end of their story, that Esau's personality that was more trusting, that was more forgiving, that was more relational, gave him an advantage in fostering healthy relationships. So we see that the weaknesses and the strengths inherent in different personalities. But Jacob and Esau are also illustrative of this this interplay between nature and nurture. How much of our personalities are inborn and genetic? How much of our personalities 
are developed and influenced by our people in our lives, our family, our friends, our life experiences. You know, sometimes uh, people might look at your child and say, boy, you're acting like your daddy. And usually that's a bad thing. I don't know, that always seems to be a negative, you know. Or they'll say, you're just like your mama, you know, because they're being so sweet. So that's probably pretty accurate. Um, but, but is that because they are genetically, you know, they've inherited that from us? Or is that because they've been influenced by us? And there's a lot of debate in literature about that. But I think Jacob and Esau's story show us it's a little bit of both. It's both something we're predisposed with, but also can be either nurtured or corrected. For example, Jacob, when he was born, he literally came out grasping his brother Esau's heel, which is where he gets his name Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber, which also came to be a term that meant trickster or con man. So from birth, Jacob had this kind of conniving, scheming, planning kind of personality. But we also see that his mother, Rebecca, encouraged it. She fostered it. She was conniving herself and helping Jacob to steal his brother's birthright and blessing. So the Bible shows us that nature and nurture are both a part of the formation of our personalities. and Some elements of our preferences are planted in us by God, but others can be influenced by the people and the environment around us. The second set of examples is Moses and Aaron, another couple of brothers. And these two brothers especially show us the inherent strengths and weaknesses in our personalities. Moses apparently wasn't much of an out front, in front of a crowd kind of a person. He wasn't a public speaker. We don't know exactly why, but this wasn't a problem for his brother Aaron. Maybe Aaron had a more outgoing personality. So Moses will tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron would be the one that would stand before the people and say it. But Aaron wasn't much of a leader. In fact, Aaron was more of a follower. You might remember the story of the golden calf where he allowed the people of Israel, Moses kind of left him in charge while he went up on the mountain with God, and Aaron allowed the people to pressure him into making this idol for them to worship. And when Moses came down the mountain and confronted Aaron about it, Aaron passed the buck. He said, you know how prone these people are to evil. What was I supposed to do with them, you know? That kind of an idea. And I love the part where he says, you know, they gave me their gold jewelry, I threw it in the fire, and out popped this calf. I don't know how that happened. Moses and Aaron, they, they had their good qualities and their bad qualities just like us. Amen? They both made grave mistakes like we often do. But thankfully, our God is a God of mercy and grace. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God takes us as we are and works with us, warts and all, and transforms us every day more into the likeness of Jesus. Now, there are a lot of other examples in the Old Testament we can look at. David and Jonathan, and David and Saul for that matter. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who was so sensitive to the suffering of Jerusalem versus Jonah, the reluctant prophet who couldn't care less what happened to the people of Nineveh. He had more of a, you know, if the punishment fits the crime kind of a mentality. The Old Testament's full of great personalities. So is the New Testament, such as the sisters Mary and Martha. You probably remember the story of Mary and Martha. These sisters illustrate that God gifts us with different personalities because teamwork involves both upfront and behind-the-scenes kinds of people. That's what we see in the story of Mary and Martha. Mary was an upfront, socially extroverted kind of woman who wanted to be in the middle of the action. She wanted to listen to Jesus teach. Then she would have been right there around that campfire, 
you know, just talking and making new friends. That was Mary. But Martha was a behind-the-scenes kind of person, more hands-on. You know, she was more comfortable in the kitchen than she was out there where Jesus and all the disciples were. Maybe she was a little more socially introverted. But again, there are always weaknesses in our, in our temperaments. Mary tended to be more impulsive, maybe a little careless, living in the moment, seeking attention. Martha was a worrier, focused on checking off her to-do list so much that Jesus said she often missed the most important things. Another good example is Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. The, the whole early church really is a great example of the diversity in the body of Christ. How God calls and uses people from so many different backgrounds and walks of life, so many different spiritual gifts and abilities and passions and personalities. Now, Paul and Barnabas are an example of two personalities that were alike. They were both leaders, both encouragers, gifted preachers, both of them, passionate about planting churches and furthering the gospel into unreached areas. Maybe their story is an example of how strong personalities can sometimes clash. Sometimes it's the people that are most like us we have a hard time getting along with, isn't it? They're the ones often we are the most critical of or the ones that we see a lot of ourselves in. And Paul and Barnabas, unfortunately, had to part ways uh, over their different approaches, basically to conflict resolution and personnel management. That's kind of what it boiled down to for them. And thankfully, they're later restored in their relationship. But, but in, the, in, the, in between time, God was able to take that and use it for the kingdom because He multiplied their ministries as they both went off on their own preaching the gospel and planting churches. And, of course, we could do a whole study on the personality differences of Jesus' 12 disciples, couldn't we? I mean, think about Peter, impulsive, outgoing, driven more by his feelings and his thinking, while his brother Andrew and his fellow disciple John were more introspective. They took times to think things through. They preferred a one-on-one approach. Matthew was obviously a detail-oriented man, probably, you know, based on his career choice, was probably a man who kind of kept to himself, but it was very observant of other people. We know that Thomas was a natural skeptic and Philip was inquisitive. Philip just asks questions of Jesus all the time. It's been said that our personalities should neither be lionized nor should they be demonized. Rather, we should allow God to shepherd our personalities and to shape our dispositions. And we see that's what He does through these people we've looked at this morning. You know, our culture tells us, you do you. Be yourself. Don't let anyone change you. But that's terrible advice. Those are falsehoods. Like all of the qualities that make us up, our personalities have to be brought into submission under Christ's Spirit so that He can compel us to love God wholly and to love others as ourselves. And when we do that, our personalities can mature and grow Jesus can take our our sin-stained preferences and transform them into Christ-like qualities, the fruit of the Spirit. So what does all this mean in relationship to our shape? How does our complex personality types fit in with the rest of these elements of shape? How can we deploy our personalities for kingdom purposes? Well, for maturing Christians, we neither blindly embrace our personality flaws, nor do we ashamedly reject the strengths that we have. We have to recognize both and submit them to Jesus, denying ourselves, bearing our cross, 
and serving Christ, His people, and His kingdom. And when we allow Jesus to renew our mind and to transform our desires and our personalities from the inside out, then He directs our temperaments under His Lordship. And He accentuates those strengths and helps us to shed those weaknesses. Now, there are a lot of approaches, as Ben mentioned in his children's sermon, to trying to identify our different personality types. A lot of different methods. There's the DISC method, which maybe you've done as a part of work. A lot of leadership training likes to do the DISC method. Some try to give us a color, or others the name of an animal, or some of us a bunch of letters, you know? So maybe you're a lion or an otter. Maybe you're purple or you're orange. Maybe you're an INFP or an ESTJ. Confused yet? And then there are the Greek terms like sanguine and choleric and phlegmatic and melancholy. That's all Greek to me. These things are confusing. I need to kind of dumb it down a little bit. So I like these approaches. You're either a Winnie the Pooh, a Tigger, a Rabbit, or an Eeyore. Or Matt, you'll like this one. You're either a Lucy, a Linus, a Snoopy, or a Charlie Brown. Now these are fun because these characters are kind of, they're caricatures of personality types, right? They have very different personalities. And you know, already in your mind, you're thinking, oh yeah, so-and-so's a Lucy. Oh, nope. He's definitely an Eeyore. I mean, we just know those people. We can identify the Charlie Browns. They walk around like this all the time, right? I like to use another method, though, that's called scope. Sco- no, not that kind of scope. Nope, that's, nope, not, there you go, scope, yeah. There's no, there's no rinsing and spitting involved, I promise. The scope method comes from the prepare enrich uh, premarital and marital counseling materials that I use. And I've really grown to like this because it acknowledges that our personality preferences aren't necessarily this or this. We're somewhere in between. We're on a continuum, like a sliding scale. And a lot of these other personality profiles want to peg you. You're either sanguine or you're melancholy. You're either an introvert or an extrovert. But scope acknowledges that we can be a little bit of both, right? Some of us tend more towards being organized. Others of us like to be spontaneous. But we can be both at different times. So the the assessment on your pew contains some very basic statements that you go through, you check off, you add them up, uh, and then at the end it helps you to, to see are you low, average, or high on each of these. And so being low on social would mean that you're more what people would call an introvert. Being high on social would mean you're more what people would call an extrovert. And you can do that for each of these areas. Now I'm not going to go through and explain what all of these mean because it's right there on your assessment. You can read that for yourself, and I invite and encourage you to join us Wednesday night at our workshop because we're going to dig into this. We're going to look a little bit more at the ins and outs of each of these parts of our personality preferences and how they interact together. And this is always my favorite session with couples because it's so much fun to look at the different personalities of a couple. Some of you are out here, you know what I'm talking about, that almost every one of them, they're like, yep, that's, that's her, <laughs> that's him. So much easier to see our personality preferences in other people sometimes, isn't it? But it's, it's fun to kind of talk about how your personality is. And it's amazing, you know the old saying, opposites attract? It's amazing how many couples really complement each other 
in these personality types. It's really a neat thing. So we'll dig into that a little bit more Wednesday. We'll have a lot of fun with it. Please join us. But I want to conclude real quick with, with a simple way that we can think about how our personality fits in with the rest of our shape. And it's simply this. Your gifts, abilities, passions, they tell you what you should do. They tell you what you're good at doing. Your personality preferences helps you focus on how and where you do those things. So, for example, if you're gifted with teaching, your personality preferences will influence whether you would rather teach in front of a large group of people, lecture style, a small group of people leading a discussion, or one-on-one with somebody over a cup of coffee. Or maybe you don't even have speaking as one of your talents, but you're great at writing. Well, maybe your gift of teaching is best expressed through writing lesson plans or blog articles. Think about leadership. If leadership is an area of giftedness for you, your personality will determine in what kind of settings you best lead. It'll help you determine how you deal with relationships or set goals or cast visions or solve problems. If your gift is helping, your personality may help you decide whether you should commit to a long-term position of service or whether you're best suited to be available on a minute's notice to jump in and to help with something. Maybe your personality is one that you tend to see the funny side of life. We need you in the church. You're the funny bone of the body of Christ. And we need you to help us to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves too seriously, to break the tension at the right moment, to see the humor in life and celebrate God's goodness. Or maybe your personality is more that you're a planner. So maybe God would have you serve on one of our administrative committees or help to plan a youth trip or a church-wide event. Maybe you've got an analytical mind. Put it to work, helping other people understand complex issues and solve life's problems. But whatever your personality, whatever your shape, if you want to use them to serve others and glorify God, it begins with this. You've got to give your life to Jesus Christ. You've got to belong to Him, to be a part of the body of Christ. It begins there. Jesus wants to forgive your sins. He wants to take those flaws and those weaknesses and forgive them and transform you from the inside out. He wants to take the broken pieces of your life and put them back together again. Have you given your life, your all, your strengths and your weaknesses, your victories and your struggles to Jesus? You may say, David, I've made such a mess of my life. I just just can't get along with people. I, I just do this, I do that. Listen, Jesus specializes in taking our messes and making them something beautiful. And I invite you this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never come before Him and acknowledged your need for Him, that you're a sinner lost and separated from God, but you want Jesus to forgive you and to come and to live within you and to make you something more than you are right now, then I invite you to come and do that today. And then the next thing you've got to do is commit yourself to a church family. A community is going to accept you and love you as God is shaping you to become and to help you nurture those good qualities and find a place to put them to work serving Him. I believe First Baptist Church is that kind of a church. So maybe God would have you to come and unite with this church family. And third, as the author of that article I mentioned wrote, we need to marinate our personalities in Jesus, in His life, death, and resurrection, in the Spirit, and in the Word. In other words, don't just be yourself. Be your in Christ self. 
Be the person that Jesus is making you to be with all of the idiosyncrasies and and all of the intricacies of who you are. Give them to Jesus and let Him do something amazing with you beyond your wildest dreams. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for how You have made each and every one of us so unique, so different. Sometimes we celebrate and appreciate those differences. Sometimes we butt heads and and rub each other the wrong way. But we're thankful that Your Spirit can give us the peace of God to help us to be at peace with one another and to be at peace with You. We're thankful that You forgive our sins and You take our weaknesses and flaws and You you fill those weaknesses with the strength of Your grace. And You do through us what we could never do on our own. Lord, if there's anybody here today that needs to begin that journey with You, they need to give their life to Christ, I pray they would do so right now. If there's anybody here that needs to unite with this church and say, this is where God would have me to worship and grow and serve and and to be a part of filling out this puzzle that is First Baptist Thompson, I pray they would come and help each and every one of us, Lord, to take the time to drill that wildcat well in our souls, to explore and discover the riches of who you've made each of us to be and put them to work for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.